As we have sung together, we've been reminded of the firm foundation that is the Word of God. And we're going to come to consider God's Word to us this morning. But before we do, uh, let's pause together and, and pray and ask for God's help. Dear Father, we uh, thank you for your Word. We thank you that in your Word we read of great promises. We thank you that you are a God who does not and cannot lie. And dear Father, we thank you that we can trust your word. And Father, as we come to consider these signs in the book of John, we pray for us that you would truly show us the glory of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask for help uh, to teach and preach well this morning, that Jesus may be glorified. And Father, as a result, that we may come to put our trust and confidence in him. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you show yourself to us. We love you and we praise you and we rely upon you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As a church together over the next few weeks, we're going to be spending time in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, he records a number of signs that Jesus performs and we're going to spend our time not looking at the the whole gospel, but focusing, focusing upon these signs. The first one we've just had read to us, that was a sign where Jesus turned water into wine. And really, by way of introduction to these series, I want to make uh, two preliminary observations uh, about these signs. Uh, and these two observations we will need to bear in mind each week uh, as we progress uh, through these signs. Most of uh, these events uh, that John calls signs, we would probably call miracles. Turning the water into wine, we would say that's miraculous. But, but John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. What, what do signs do? Well, signs communicate something to us. They point past themselves. Even though this first miracle takes place at a wedding party, Jesus' miracles, they're never just simply party tricks. They're never shows of power just to get people's attention, to wow the crowd. Jesus' miracles are, are signs. They, they communicate something to us. They point past themselves. I'm sure you've had this experience, uh, if you're a driver, of, of driving along the road and you see a sign up ahead. The sign is there, it's got lots of information on. And before, before you manage to, to read all the information, you're past the sign. You may have seen the sign, but you've not understood the sign. In order to understand the sign, you have to understand the message that the sign is communicating. We also, also need to see where the sign is pointing. The sign is not a destination. When Jesus turned water into wine, the lesson is not, oh, oh great, Jesus can turn water into wine. The sign points past itself to a destination, to, to a conclusion. And we mustn't stop at the sign, we must follow the direction the sign points. We see that's the case from the last verse that we read today in John chapter 2, verse 11. Let me read. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Where do these signs point? What do these signs that Jesus performed communicate? Well, they, they point to his glory. They, 
they show us his glory. That's where the title for this teaching series came from, revealing his glory. So each of these signs that we're going to look at in some way reveal Jesus' glory. And what was the effect of this revealed glory upon Jesus' disciples? Well, we see there from verse 11 that it caused them to put their trust in him. There was something uh, so convincing about these signs. Uh, they saw something of Jesus' glory that made them put their trust in him. One of those disciples who put their trust in Jesus was John, uh, the writer of this gospel. He writes this gospel as a witness or as a testimony to what he's seen and heard. And towards the end of the book, he tells us why he's decided to put pen to paper or, or perhaps quill to papyrus. John 20 verse 30, this is right at the end of the book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's telling us there, there are lots of other signs. In fact, he says if, if he were to write all of the signs down, all the books in all the world couldn't contain them. But he's selected these specific signs. Why? So that we as readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the, the promised anointed king, that he's the Christ, that he's the son of God, and that by believing in him, we may know real life. So this book is written so that we may follow the signs, see Jesus' glory, believe and have life. Now the 21st century cynic reads John's words at the end of the gospel and says, aha, we, we can't trust John. John's biased. He's got an agenda, he's not impartial. He wants us to believe. In response to that, I, I would say, just because John is writing so that we may believe, that doesn't mean his testimony is unreliable. Imagine you're the eyewitness at a murder scene. You, you saw the crime unfold. You saw the one who pulled the trigger on the gun. You know exactly who is guilty. As you stand in the witness box to provide testimony before the court, your evidence isn't unreliable because you know who committed the murder. Neither is your evidence invalid because you're trying to convince the jury of who committed the murder. You're just trying to tell them what you have seen and what you know. That's exactly like John. He's, a, he's an eyewitness. He's writing an eyewitness testimony. And the extraordinary signs that he saw led him to believe in Jesus. And he writes so that we too may believe in Jesus. So these signs that we're going to look at over these next weeks, they communicate something to us and they point past themselves. And as we're looking at these signs, a great question to keep asking is, how does this sign reveal Jesus' glory? If we're asking that question, we won't go too far wrong. The second preliminary observation I want to make is that these signs appear in a story that has already started. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of watching a film from halfway through. Maybe you, you come in 
to the lounge and one of your family's already watching a film and you get drawn in and you sit down and you, and you start watching. As the story unfolds, you get to this point that seems very significant. Something's happening uh, that you can tell from, from the person you're watching it with is very significant. But because you've missed the start of the story, you can't quite see the significance of what's unfolding. These signs can be a little bit like that. They appear in, in, in a story that's already started. The story is the story of the Bible, which is the story of our world. It's the story of God's dealings with his creation. And Jesus performed these signs in a culture and at a time that is a long way removed from our present time and culture. First century Israel uh, was a culture that was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And so that means that if we're going to grasp and understand the significance of the sign, we're going to have to fit them into the big picture of the story of the Bible. Let me give you an example with how that works for today's sign. We're looking at the turning of water into wine. Jesus really did turn water into wine at this wedding in Cana. And it was lots of wine too. If you look at the, the details of the passage, you can do the maths. You can work out just how much it was. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons in each jar. If you get your calculator out, you, you'll get between 550 and 800 litres of fine wine. That was the outcome of the miracle that Jesus performed. The wine back then wouldn't have been as potent as the wine that we have today. It would often be diluted, but it wasn't fruit juice. And in Psalm 104, wine is celebrated as a, as a good gift from God. It's given to gladden man's heart. Sadly, like all God, God's good gifts, uh, we in our sin tend to take his gifts in the wrong way. People have a tendency to abuse and misuse God gifts, but we shouldn't blame God for that. Wine is a good gift from God, but also wine in the Old Testament uh, is a picture of something more. Wine is more than just wine. Wine represents the good life. It's a picture of, of joy and celebration. It's a picture of, of God's abundant blessings to his people. So abundant wine becomes symbolic of a time when God will, will visit his people and provide for them blessings and, and joy. Let me show you that from the Old Testament. This is the story before Jesus came. Isaiah 25 says this, God promises on this mountain, the Lord will prepare a rich, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people and the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And there are several other places in the Old Testament where God says this time will come to his people. It will be time of fruitfulness and abundance. The book of Amos, another prophet, uh, says that there's going to be a time when the treader of grapes overtakes the one who sows the seed. Such is going to be the, the fruitfulness 
and in that day the mountains will drip with wine. So you can see from this sign that Jesus performs turning water into wine, finest of wines, you can see why that has a significance in light of this Old Testament story. So as we look at each of these signs over the next weeks, we must remember that they appear in a story that has already started. And that'll mean we have to do a bit of work fitting them into the big, big picture. So with all that in mind, let's look at today's passage, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It'd be great if you have a Bible just to open it uh, at that section. Verses 1 to 3, they set the scene uh, of what's going on in this passage and they also uh, show us a problem that's occurred. Let me read verses 1 to 3. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said to him, they have, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So this is the scene, it's a wedding, a local wedding for, for Jesus. He's not had to travel far. In the chapter before, in chapter one of John's gospel, Jesus has called to, to himself at least five disciples. And so Jesus and those disciples, along with his mother, have gone to this wedding. It could have been a family member or, or a close friend. It may even have been that Jesus' mum was involved in helping sort out some of, some of the food. And food and wine were an integral part of the wedding celebration. 21st century, our weddings last for a day. Back in 1st century Israel, weddings could last up for up to a week. It was a week-long party, and so being enough food and wine was, was really important. And running out of food and wine would be a, a grave social error. Some of the commentators even say that running out of, of, of wine at a wedding could leave a family open to kind of a, a legal process. Put yourself in the shoes of the bridegroom from this wedding in Cana. You've arranged the wedding. All the guests are invited. From verse 9 and 10, it's clear that in that day, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family to provide the food and the, and the wine. And now imagine it's, it's running out. Imagine there's a long queue of people at the buffet table. Only half the people have eaten and the caterers come to you and say, sorry, there's no more food. People have already been waiting a long time for a meal. They're hungry and now you have nothing to give them. The celebration is going to sag. We don't know why the, the wine ran out. Could have been bad planning. It could have been poor logistics. It could have been uh, that this family are financially stretched. But as Mary speaks those words in verse 3 to Jesus, she brings the problem to him. They have no more wine. Whatever our, our problem that we face, Mary's example is, is a great example for us to bring our problems to Jesus, to speak them out clearly before him. That's what Mary does. And then we see Jesus, he, he brings the solution to the problem. Verse seven, let me read. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet 
would maybe be the equivalent of the, the chief caterer or the head chef. And at some point between the water going into the jars uh, and the water touching the master of the banquet's lip, this lips, this water has become the finest of wine, miraculously transformed. And as the master of the banquet tastes the water that's now become wine, he judges it to be the best wine. He doesn't know where the wine has come from. The servants, they know where it's come from. But the master of the banquet doesn't. So he calls the bridegroom aside and he congratulates him. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first sign that Jesus performed. Someone has said uh, of John's gospel, that John's gospel is, is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but shallow enough for a child not to drown in. And as I've looked at this sign over this last week, I've definitely found that to be true. Uh, one sense on the surface, this sign is, is, is straightforward. Jesus is doing a creative miracle. He takes water and, and creates something new, turns it into wine, fine wine. That's not hard for Jesus. If we've read John chapter one and understand who Jesus is, turning water into wine is, is no big deal. John has introduced Jesus as the word in chapter one. In the beginning, he says, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That takes us right back to the Genesis, the start of the Bible, when God created by speaking a word. And John is now telling us that this word, the word, is Jesus Christ. Through him, everything was made that has been made. And now with the coming of Jesus into the world, there is going to be a new creation. Shouldn't surprise us that Jesus does a creative miracle like this, taking something like water and transforming it into fine wine. So on a surface level, we see Jesus do this creative miracle and he does it for the benefit of this couple, probably a young couple here in Cana. He does it to cover their shame. If, if news had got out that this man had run out of wine, it would be a shameful thing for him. It's such a gracious miracle for Jesus to do. He even allows in verse 10, the bridegroom to get credit for the wine. And Jesus provides the best wine in abundance. This first wine shows us that Jesus is all about joy and celebration and, and gladness. Some people have the impression that Christianity is all about glum faces. That Jesus is a party pooper who, who loves to spoil people's fun. That he's looking out ready and waiting for someone to just slip up. This first sign that Jesus performed shows that those ideas couldn't be further from the truth. As I've thought about this, uh, this sign over this last week, I've also found that it takes us also into deep waters. 
You don't have to spend a long time considering these 11 verses before you realise that this sign is about something of greater significance than just Jesus rescuing the wedding celebrations at a wedding in Cana. This parable draws on, this, this sign draws on several big themes that run through the entire Bible. And in fact, as I've prepared this, this week to, to, to preach this passage, I found it quite difficult. It seems to be so expansive. There seems to be so much to say. I think we could easily camp out in this chapter for the next month. What I want to do as we look at this passage this morning is just to consider one big theme that we find in this uh, section of John's Gospel. And the theme is the theme of the bridegroom. I think here in this sign that Jesus performs, we see that Jesus is the all-providing bridegroom. He's the all-providing bridegroom. The, the theme of bridegroom and the theme of a wedding runs all the way through the Bible. Right at the start in, in John chapter 2, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, there is a wedding. God brings uh, Eve to Adam. Adam is delighted. There's this intimate relationship between the two. Two become one flesh. And as the Bible story unfolds, it becomes clear that this marriage relationship is there, is designed to be a window into God's relationship with his people. So over and over again, God describes his joyous relationship to his people as, as like a, a bride and bridegroom. He is the bride and he's, he is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. He, he cares for his people. He provides for his people. He loves his people. He, he lavishes his blessings upon his people. The sad thing is though, that as you go through the first half of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, that his people are not a faithful bride. Their actions are, are, are described in terms of, of adultery. They are an unfaithful adulteress. They, they scorn this covenant relationship with their God, their creator. And because of that, what, what begins to happen is the blessings dry up. So the people of Israel end up exiled, out of the land, facing hard times. And when Jesus arrives on the scene here in John's Gospel, the people of Israel are back in the land. But this promised age, this age of abundant wine and, and blessing, their experience couldn't be further from, from that reality. This time the prophets wrote about when, when the mountains would drip with wine, when there would be feasting, when, when death would be no more. That, that seemed like a, a world away from, from, from the first century Israel, Israelites' experience. So when Mary comes to Jesus in, in verse 3 of chapter 2 and says they have no wine, she speaks the truth more deeply than she realises. Not only does the fact that they have no wine describe the the problem at the wedding in Cana. It describes the truth about God's first century, about first century Judaism. These people have broken God's covenant. They still had all the kind of religious externals, the activity uh, that represented their relationship with God, the temple, the ceremony, the religious ceremonies. It's represented in these six water jars that we see 
here in the story. Those religious practices were still there, but, but they merely just papered over the cracks. They covered the reality that their relationship with God was in tatters. It broken down, the joy had gone. Mary's words in verse 3, they also describe life in this world without God. They have no more wine. We all recognise, I think, the pattern of verse 10. The usual pattern that the master of ceremonies identifies. Let's see it there. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. We all recognise that downward pattern of a life lived without God. The things that excite, excite us today, they've lost their shine by tomorrow and provide no satisfaction the day after. Today's prized purchase finds its way to tomorrow's second-hand sale, finds its way into next week's bin collection. We just don't seem to be able to find something that will sustain our joy and celebration. It lasts for a day, but it seems gone tomorrow. C.S. Lewis described this pattern in these words, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. When we're young, isn't it, our life seems to, to stretch out before us, full of possibilities. Very quickly, we realise we're over the hill, facing an ageing body. We're realising that our best days are behind us. There's no more wine. That's the pattern of life in this world without God. But then Jesus comes and Jesus changes everything. He takes, takes water out of these old stone jars made for ceremonial washing. And he brings out of them new fine wine in abundance. He is, he is the bridegroom. He is God come to his people to restore joy and blessing. Listen to what John the Baptist says in the very next chapter of John's Gospel in chapter 3. Some people were mistaking John for being the Christ. That's the Messiah, God's anointed and promised King. Some people were thinking that John the Baptist, he's the man. But John says this, I am not the Christ but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. John is saying the bridegroom is here. And with this last, this, this first sign that Jesus performs, turning the water into wine, he, he, what he's saying is if you want joy, real lasting joy, if you want life, life in all its fullness, if you want God's richest and abundant, most abundant blessings, he says, I am the beginning. I, I am the beginning of something new. I am where that life is found. And the story of Jesus and the bridegroom continues. The last chapters, uh, Jesus, the bridegroom continues. In the last chapters of the Bible, we see a future that Jesus is going to bring about. It's pictured in terms of a great marriage 
banquet, a, a feast. I don't know about you, but I love that bit of the wedding uh, when the ceremony is, is done, uh, the celebration goes on and everyone sits down to a wonderful meal. We relax, there's chat. We relax if you don't have to, have to give a speech at least. Uh, we relax that there's chat, there's enjoyment, there's a celebratory atmosphere. Jesus pictures the future to which he's taking this world to as, as, as like a, a feast, a cosmic feast. Then there will be joy without tears and there will be life without death. Instead of life leading downhill towards death, now with the coming of, of Jesus, out of death springs eternal life. Jesus is saying through this miracle, not that our best days are behind us, but our best days are before us if we will trust him. He is the all-providing bridegroom who will make all things new. I wonder, do you glimpse his glory this morning as we think about this first sign, water to wine? As we uh, move towards a close, I want us to think about what it cost Jesus to be the all-providing bridegroom. While it may not have been difficult for Jesus to turn water into wine at this wedding in Cana, to be the bridegroom, the all-providing bridegroom, cost Jesus greatly. Weddings never come cheap and this cosmic wedding is, is no exception. We get some hints of the price that it cost Jesus in this strange encounter with his mum in verses 4 and 5. I'm sure you noticed that as we read those verses. Jesus' mother comes to him with this statement, they have no more wine. And Jesus' reply to her is a little bit strange, isn't it? It almost appears rude. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Today, I suggest if you address someone simply with the word woman, it, it would be rude. In Jesus' day, this way of addressing someone it wasn't rude but it was a little formal it put distance between Jesus and Mary a distance you wouldn't expect to be there between a mother and a son why does Jesus put this distance between himself and Mary why does he seem to repel uh, her request well it's clear from Jesus response as he sits at this wedding in Cana on his mind is, is this greater wedding we've been thinking about where he is the all-providing bridegroom. And as, Jesus, as Mary comes to Jesus uh, to tell him that there is no more wine, he's, he's thinking about this other wedding, this greater wedding. And he says to her, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to provide for, for that wedding. And even though Mary is Jesus' mother, she has to learn that, that being his, his mother doesn't give her some special inside track with Jesus. Simply being his mother doesn't earn her special privileges and favours. Jesus' mission is not to do what Mary wants, it's to do what his heavenly Father wants. 
And Mary must know that even though she is Jesus' mum, Jesus is also her Lord and Master. And we see her respond, don't we, in, in humble faith in verse 5. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, Jesus will do something at this wedding. He delights to bring joy and gladness. He covers over the shame of this young newly married couple in Cana who have run out of wine. He will do something, but now is not the time for him to do everything. His hour had not yet come. When is Jesus' hour? Well, the hour comes towards the end of the gospel when Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified. In chapter 12, as Jesus approaches the cross, he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross is what it cost Jesus to be the all-providing bridegroom. The cross is what was needed for Jesus to bring about a future of unending joy. It was at the cross that Jesus defeated death for us and ensures that one day there will be a world with no more death. And as he dies, he dies in our place. It says in one of the apostles writing that he becomes a curse for us. So that all of God's abundant blessings, so that the wine of God's abundant blessing may flow richly towards us through his life through his death and through his resurrection Jesus brings to us the good life he brings us real life life with a, a capital L and he invites us this morning to share in that life with him there's a passage that we often read at weddings from Ephesians chapter 5 it says this husbands Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That was the cost for Jesus to be the all-providing bridegroom. And in turning this water to wine in Cana, he reveals something of his glory. And at the cross, that glory shines more brightly than the sun. I wonder this morning, do you see his glory? Do you glimpse his glory in this first sign? His disciples did. Did you see what was said of them in verse 11? What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples trusted in him. Lots of people are interested by Jesus. Lots of people respect him. But it's a mark of his disciples that they trust him. They put their confidence in him. They turn away from putting their confidence and trust in other places and they place it firmly in the Lord Jesus. I want you today to take time to consider this sign. Consider the fact that Jesus is the all-providing bridegroom. 
that true joy and, and, and God's blessings and real life is found only in Jesus Christ. And remember why John is writing this gospel. He's writing as an eyewitness. You didn't see the miracle in Cana. I didn't see the water turn to wine, but John did. And it was enough to convince him to believe in Jesus. And he writes so that we may see the glory and so that we may believe. And that by believing, we will have life in his name. Real life, new life, eternal life, life beyond death. And I want to encourage you this morning to trust Jesus, to turn to him and to follow him, to, 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 to show that faith that, that Mary showed as she said to the, the servants, do whatever he tells you. When you realise who Jesus is, that's the right response, to trust him and to do whatever he tells you. So follow the sign, see his glory, trust in him and find life. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word to us again this morning. We thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray that something of the glory that is here in your word would dawn upon our hearts. Father, give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts with faith in him. Help us to turn away from all those things around us that promise joy but do not satisfy. Help us to come to Jesus and enjoy the abundant blessings that we find in him alone. We ask this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a song together as we close. Uh, and it's a song that reminds us that Jesus is our, our only hope. The song's called Christ our, Lo Christ our Hope in Life and Death. And one of the verses uh, says this. There we will rise to meet the Lord when sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. That's the future for all those who trust in Jesus. The best is certainly uh, yet to be. Let's enjoy the words of this song together. <laughs>